0: Oh, that's funny. I invited somebody today. They didn't show up. I'm not bitter. (laughs) What's everybody doing today? Man, it is good to be uh, here with you, getting to share today. I think we're kind of going through the pre-Easter lull. I don't know, you know, people, everybody's going to be here next week, so this is the week that maybe they'll stay home and get ready for their dresses and stuff for next week. My family, we like uh, actually Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is one of our favorites. When we lived in Guam, in the chapel, we'd go cut the palms and we'd actually sit as a staff and split them out getting ready for service. And I thought that was always a good memory, you know. And uh, growing up Catholic, we were always trying to figure out who could be the most creative and what kind of shape they could make out of their palm on Palm Sunday. I'm pretty good at making a cross out of mine, I'm just saying. Uh, My favorite Palm Sunday was on the South China Sea in a Chinese junk uh, as we were kind of staying overnight. Uh, Three adopted families, uh, we gathered together on the back end of the boat. We asked the captain if we could cut branches off of his plant and he kind of gave me a weird look and he said, I guess, you know, in Vietnamese. And so we were there with our children and we were singing songs and next thing I knew, another family joined us and then another family joined us and What I found out was, you know, in Vietnam, a lot of folks had not gotten to go to Protestant worship. And they heard us worshiping and they joined us. And it's just kind of a sense of, you know, that Christianity transcends our culture and our language and our experiences. And we have that one thing in common, but we still have this sense of identity. Yesterday, yesterday was the best day of the year for all of the college that I teach at. You know what yesterday was? Every year... They have an international fair and all the international officers that are there cook food and bring beverages and and other examples of their culture and they gather in a hangar and you go booth to booth and you you try to eat just a little bit but when you're an instructor they want to pile it onto your plate so that you get a really good taste of what they're cooking and i understand why i'm a little round today (laughs) it's amazing and and sometimes it's not amazing but the food is always interesting and uh, I, I've paid for it dearly, but it, it's worth it every single time. And I keep thinking it's kind of a taste of what heaven's going to be like, right? You see all the different clothing and the different languages and and the different foods and the different experiences and the different celebrations, and and it's kind of a kingdom thing, isn't it? That the identity of who Jesus is in our lives unites us, but we still have this sense of individual identity that is expressed in different ways. And I was talking to Pastor Keith and, and Dave about this at the elders meeting. I thought, you know, it's so helpful to know what that secret sauce is in our gathering, in our church. It's so helpful to know who we are as a body, because it kind of determines how we minister to the community that we're in. You know, To know the identity that Christ has put in your life and the identity that he's put in our church will help us figure out how we're going to go about doing business for the kingdom. And there's lots of different families within this kingdom and different expressions of faith, but Christ's community has its own unique expression. And I just encourage you to just start asking God, okay, where do I fit into the big picture? What are my gifts? What's my secret sauce? Where is it that you're calling me to be? Who is it you're calling me to be for Jesus, and how can I use that gift for you? When we uh, serve God, sometimes it's easy to look for the hope, and it's easy to miss the difficulty that gets in the middle, isn't it? You know, we want to look straight to heaven and miss the the death that will probably come before we get. To heaven or the sickness or the uh, failure or the the fire job or the failed marriage or you name the disappointment that might come in the middle we want to hold fast to the promise and I'm glad that we have the promise because that's what gets us through this life with its ups and its downs its challenges with the course that's set before us for the jews We know that in the year 8066, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Romans, that there was a wall around Jerusalem that they were trying to hold off the Romans, which isn't such a good idea because they were a lot more powerful than the Jews, and they just heaped up mounds of dirt around the city and climbed over the walls and killed all the people that were inside. You know, I used to feel really safe with those stone walls when I'd go on deployments, and now after I, I started studying how the Romans defeated the stone walls, I don't feel nearly as comfortable as I used to. Um... But in that moment, the Roman occupation and the Jewish uh, resistance came to a head. And the Jews, their temple was destroyed. 95,000 people were carted off to Rome. They actually built a relief sculpture in Rome to celebrate the day that they destroyed the Jewish nation for its resistance. But that's not the way it was in the time of Jesus the time of jesus there was this expectation that maybe things were going to get better that maybe the jews would get delivered that maybe the romans would be cast off and they were looking for somebody to come into their midst and to take them away from the roman oppression to give them back their kingdom to give them back their authority to cast off the roman oppressor that they were looking for a jewish savior In Luke chapter 19, verse 29, it says, When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, just say this, The Lord needs it so that those who were sent departed and found it. As he had told them, so Mount of Olives. If you go to Jerusalem, it's kind of sitting in this valley, and there's hills around it, and there's like these olive orchards, and that's kind of where Jesus kind of liked to camp out as he was getting ready to go into the city. And you can see the city below you. It, It looks different than it did in the time of Jesus. It's got that gold dome in the middle, so it's not hard to to orient yourself to where you're at. But they would look out and they would see the Jewish temple and they would see the palace. And as Jesus is getting ready to go in, he said, hey, it'd be nice to have a ride. Go tell those folks to let me have their donkey. Just say that I said it was okay. Now, can you imagine somebody walks up to you and says, hey, I need your car. Doug, you got a new car. Somebody says, hey, I need the keys to your car. It's okay. Jesus says it's for him. (laughs) But you know, he's like, who is this Jesus you speak of? (laughs) I don't think that he can drive my car you know, kind of crowdsourcing Jesus, right? You know, it's this idea that I'm just going to go get what I need to take care of what I want in the moment. And, and you know, from our perspective, we're like, well, it's Jesus. Of course, we're going to give him our car. We're going to give him whatever he asks for. But, you know, in that day, they're thinking, who is this nut? You know, he, we've heard of this Jesus. We've heard that he does miracles. We, we've we heard that he, he has an audience, that he's a great teacher. We, we want to know more about him. But there's Their expectations based more on the hope that maybe he would set them free from the Romans than to really understand who Jesus was. And in verse 35, when they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and he rode along, and people kept spreading cloaks on the road. This is just kind of an amazing story, right? This kind of celebrity is coming to town, and they, they said, yeah, you can have the colt for Jesus, and they put cloaks on Jesus, and he's sitting on their cloaks, and as he's riding, they're waving branches, and they're throwing coats for him, the, the colt to walk on, so that the colt's feet don't even touch the dust of the road. Now, think about this. If you're in a society where you only really have two garments, two pieces of clothes, and you're throwing half of them on the ground so that somebody can trample them, you're, you're making a statement, right? This guy's a big deal. We're going to celebrate him like a big deal. We're we're going to give a really warm reception to this Jesus guy because we want to see more. We've been hearing some kind of exciting things about him. It's interesting because there's a distinction made in this passage between the disciples and the crowd. When the Bible talks about the disciples, he's talking about not just the 12 disciples, but this concept that someone has decided to become a student of Jesus. And in this context, it's a sacrificial decision to follow Jesus with your entirety, with your life, to, to not just know who Jesus is, but to imitate who Jesus is. To let go of the me and, and pick up your cross and follow him. It's this sense that I am all in, no matter what it's going to cost. And then there's the crowd. And the majority of the people who follow Jesus in the New Testament are part of the crowd. The crowd is just this large group that's fickle, that changes, that's blown about by the winds and the waves of of whatever storm comes their way. It's this sense that, okay, if it's good today, I'm with you. If it's bad tomorrow, I don't want anything to do with it. The crowd in this moment is raising their branches high, throwing their coats on the ground, saying, Jesus, Messiah, Hosanna. They're saying all the things that they think that Jesus wants to hear. You should always be careful when people are telling you what they think you want to hear because they probably aren't really on your side. But the disciples, they're not saying Hosanna. I don't know if you caught that in the passage. Disciples are saying something else. In verse 37, it says, As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Jesus brought hope. The crowd they're just, they're kind of giving their empty praise. The disciples are being very specific about what Jesus has done. And I think the mark of a disciple is not just somebody who can say, yes, I love God. I love God. Yes, I do. I love God. How about you? You know, it's, it's not like the peacekeepers where you blow up the great big balloon or balls and you're like throwing them around. You're doing the wave for Jesus. That's crowdsourcing praise, Right. The disciples were way different in the way that they worshipped Jesus. They were specific. They said, this is what I saw Him do. This is what He did in my life. This is who Jesus is to me. If you don't have that kind of gravitas, that kind of depth to your worship, that kind of meat when it comes to praising God, you haven't experienced Him yet. And that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. You might be like somebody in that crowd saying, hey, I'm ready. What do you got, Jesus? But if you've been living with Jesus for a while, you probably have some things to say about him. I mean, I've been living with my wife for almost 25 years now. It would be July 23rd. If you ask her, she'd have some things to say about me. Now, not all of them would be about as nice as the things that Jesus, we would say about living 25 years with him, but when we're with somebody in that proximity, in that close personal relationship, we should have some things to say, some praise to give. We should have some depth to the relationship we have with Christ. And if we don't have depth, meat to our praise, maybe we don't know Jesus like we think we know Jesus. And what's interesting here is that the depth of praise that these disciples have for Jesus, the the specifics about their claims are so astounding it begins to threaten people it makes them uncomfortable a life completely surrendered to christ will probably make people outside of the kingdom a little uncomfortable well wait now i'm meddling right you know you're you're, you want to go to the church where people feel good they want to come it's it's all a celebration we don't want to be a part of the church that makes people feel uncomfortable do we As I read the New Testament, that is the natural result of following Christ. I I hate to say it because it's not why I became a Christian. I became a Christian because I really wanted people to like me. (laughs) And then I met the risen Jesus and it changed everything. And the next thing I knew is I realized that it did make my relationships better, but it did not necessarily make them broader. Sometimes the same thing that brings people to me is the same thing that pushes others away and that's something that i accept in being a christian sometimes the truth will push folks away and that's okay you still got to love them but you have to accept that the good with the bad the rain with the sun the grief with the joy and jesus some of the pharisees in the crowds the religious leaders that opposed him they they said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. You know, so he says, if the people don't praise me, even the, the world around us, the inanimate objects, even, even the things that don't have a voice would testify to who I am. I can't silence the truth. Like, that's a good thing to remember in our world, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people that want the church to be silent. They want Christians to not speak out. They, they don't want us to say things that would make them uncomfortable. The message of Christ is uncomfortable at times. It's okay. If we're silent, even the world around would testify to the truth of who God is. It's interesting in science, uh, you know, they, they talk about how the world, the universe is constantly expanding, and and it's a really intricate theory. The problem is Einstein tried to disprove that theory because it made him uncomfortable. Made him uncomfortable because he could see the evidence of it, but it drew him to one unmistakable, unmistakable conclusion, and that was there had to be a start point, and if there's a start point, there had to be a reason and he couldn't explain it and he did not want to go beyond that step and say maybe somebody started the whole thing even if we're silent the universe around us proclaims the truth of who God is and I I want you to remember this what he said specifically about the stones crying out because I think it has some depth as we look at it in hindsight we're going to go back to that The disciples had come to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen blind eyes see. They'd seen the leprous clean. They'd seen the dead live again. And they were not silent about it. They were like, You would not believe the things that I've seen Jesus do. It's amazing. And the way they talked about Jesus, it, it put him on the same level as God. And now we're used to hearing that in the church. We, we've come to accept that. But for them, that was a radical revelation. For a world where there was one God and you didn't get to see God face to face or you would perish. And, and the law was uh, the expression of who God was in our day. To say that Jesus was on the level of God was blasphemy and it was threatening, and it was uncomfortable, and it was the last thing that religious leaders wanted to hear. It challenged the status quo. It challenged the authority of the rulers, of the religious, of the professional scribes who knew the law and the Bible. It challenged those that were in power in religion in a way that made them want to silence it and push it away. I would say there's still people that want to silence the words in the testimony of the church today would, would you agree there are still people who are uncomfortable when we talk about the truth of what jesus says and what his message was some wanted to quiet a quiet messiah that wouldn't rock the boat some wanted a rock star messiah that would deliver them from rome and some wanted no messiah at all because it challenged their authority And still others saw Jesus as the long-awaited hope. Jesus came not as a victor conquering the city, but he came as a king bringing peace. He wasn't that deliverance from the Romans. He was what they did not expect, and for many of them, what they did not want. In verse 41, it says, As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If... You, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden in your eyes, from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The Romans would come and just a few short years and destroy the city around them tear down the temple just make it a mess of stones that cry out the truth of what Jesus was saying if they were silent even the stones would cry out who Jesus was he foretold it it happened and it brought full circle the message of what happens when we reject God in our lives and we begin to live for ourselves, it brings destruction. And he wept because he could foresee the destruction of Rome, I mean of Jerusalem, because they rejected who Jesus was and what his message was. They didn't understand what it really meant to be at peace. They didn't what it meant, understand what it meant to really have a surrender before God. And it would ultimately cost them their lives and for some their eternity. Because they didn't embrace the message of Christ. Jesus brought truth. Verse 45, when he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there, and he said, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were spellbound by what they heard so we're told that religious leaders are trying to kill him because they're so threatened by his authority there's this competing authority between what jesus brings the real authority of god and and the the artificial kingdoms built by men and that really is the conflict that we still have today that there is a world around us that has their own artificial sense of this is mine i'm in control and the message of christ challenges that the first decision every christian has to make is that i'm going to bend my knee to god and let him have authority in my life and that message is threatening to some outside of our walls society that serves its own imagined authority will always be threatened by god whose real authority threatens to tear away their self-constructed kingdoms of power there are a lot of competing philosophies in the world and as i've considered this that the main conflict that we come into in the world around us is the message of god's kingdom which says that we are no longer allowed to live for ourselves but we have to live sacrificially and incidentally that's usually where we get it wrong as christians right we, we often come to Jesus for what's in it for me. And many of those that leave the kingdom early, that, that quit going to church, that quit confessing Christ, they do it because they're not getting what they think they should get, what they want. It doesn't feel good. It's difficult. It's painful. But the message of Christ is, is at its core, I am no longer going to live for myself, but I'm going to live for what God demands of me. The message of the world is, I'm going to embrace whatever's going to let me do what I want to do." And typically where we get into conflict uh, with the world around us is when we try to make a decision based on what's best for others and, uh, or because of what God, which is selfless versus the, um, the ethic that says, "I just want to have the freedom to choose whatever I want to. So for instance, Most Christians have come to the conclusion that abortion is wrong, that it's reprehensible to take the life of a baby uh, that's unborn. The world comes into conflict with us when we try to establish laws or rules or behaviors that interfere with free choice to do what's convenient or best for me. We have accepted a code that is bigger than our own wants where we have had to learn to die to our own wants. And if we're not doing that, we're not following Christ. We have to accept, as God puts it before us, that we have to lay down what we want, what we think is best for us, what's convenient for us, and pick up what he says is best for him and for the other. We, have ha- we, we are called to pick up an ethic that looks at the other before ourselves. And the world will always be in conflict because they will always put the, want to put themselves before the other. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't resent that or be angered by that. We should be challenged to live it better in such a way that it begins to inspire the world around us to ask the question, why are they doing that? Why would they put, themsel- put others before themselves? Why would they lay their lives down? If we act selfishly as Christians, we will confirm to the world that we are phony and that there is no God. But if we continue to live sacrificially, being imitators of Christ, it will continue to expand the kingdom, people will get saved, and lives will be changed as God has revealed to us. Our choices are no longer ours to make on the basis of personal freedom of preference. We've accepted a code that's bigger than our wants. And the world will always want to silence that authority because it threatens their own personal kingdom. And Jesus goes to the heart of the city and to the house of God in Jerusalem. That's become entirely corrupt. They've built up this system where it's about making money more than it is about worship. And these people are selling uh, articles of worship that is prohibitive to those that are too poor to go in and worship God. It's a way to make money more than it is a way to let people come in and know God. And Jesus overturns everything. And that's the nature of who Jesus was. His very life threatened a world that had become so corrupt that it became a wall between the people and God. And Jesus came to tear that wall down. And this is symbolized in overturning the, the, the moneylenders' tables and saying, you know, this is supposed to be a place where people pray, and you've made it into a place where people are robbed and thieved and hindered. From knowing who God is. He was overturning the symbols of worship to the point to point beyond the forms of worship, to the heart of the worshiper. If God doesn't care so much about the way that we worship. He cares about the heart that we worship with. And if there's something getting in the way of that, we need to get rid of it. We need to break it free so that we can come face to face to God without the hindrance without the phoniness without the uh, commercialism without the the me stuff so that we can look to the him stuff if our worship is simply about our own entertainment or about our own um, feelings then we're not really worshiping right and i think the american church has done a really done an injustice to God because we've made worship sometimes about the way that we feel or the way that we're entertained and less about the act of giving God praise. True praise, not just with our words, not just with our mouth, but with our imitation and with our sacrifice. People had become so focused on their own gain that they were hindering people from coming, coming to God. And Jesus' very life is an overturning of the cosmic order which has allowed sin to build a wall between the people and God. Jesus brought judgment. Jesus was everything except for what the people expected. He's not what they look for in a Messiah. They wanted the the comfortable Messiah, the happy Messiah. They wanted the Messiah that did miracles and brought healing and and fed people and, and maybe pushed away the Romans, but they didn't want the Messiah that asked them to change and to sacrifice and to to be different and didn't make them feel good all the time. But, you know, Jesus is both. You know, every parent knows. There's days your kids love you. There's days your kids are mad at you. And a lot of times they're mad at you because you're holding them to a standard that they need to learn, right? Uh, The crowd was fickle. You know, one day it's ready to welcome Jesus with palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground, and the next day they're, they're screaming out in angry words, crucify him. They were more concerned with what was convenient and contemporary than they were with what it meant to imitate Jesus, what it meant to really live a life yielded to him. That's not what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is not in it for the moment. A disciple is not in it for the feeling. A disciple is not in it because everybody else is in it. A disciple has bent their knee to Christ and said, even if it's just me, I'm going to live a life surrendered to you. Their hearts turned on crowds of motion. Living for God is about a faith that follows Jesus through the good and the bad, through the triumph and through the crucifixion. It's a life surrendered, no matter what comes, surrendered to Jesus. And all that Jesus was, he made them angry because he wasn't what they wanted or what they expected. And I've seen this as, as I've been a pastor for a while, that people leave the church because Jesus doesn't live up to what they expected him to be and I've seen people say, well, you know, I, I kept trying to serve God, and I kept finding angry voices, and it, <laughs> it took me a long time to figure this out. People go to church to validate what they think God is, and if they think God is angry, they will find angry churches to attend. If they think that Jesus is commercial, they will go find commercial che- churches to attend. Your concept of God is going to drive what fellowship you end up in. And if you're disappointed because of the church you've been going to, it's you picked it. You know, I like to say we pick our family. You need to evaluate what the claims of Scripture are and really say, okay, God, what does it mean to be a disciple? It's not necessarily all the trappings and the bumper stickers and the slogans and the, the Christianisms of this world. We got to do a gut check and say, "Okay, God, if I'm disappointed, it's probably because I was looking for the wrong things in Jesus." And figure out what His claims were and what He demands of you, and surrender to that. It's a little bit, a little bit meteor sermon than I normally preach. I don't. You should get the Happy Dave. It's not my word; it's God's. I'm just kind of delivering it today, so. Jesus, who's often met with with joy, frequently is cast out with disdain. If, one, if your faith is real, it's going to grow. It's going to grow through the good times and the bad. It's going to grow through uh, the challenges, the, the disruptions, when people love you, when people uh, push you out of their lives. And so... Sometimes we come to church and we're part of the crowd. We're really not disciples yet, and we get these disappointments or we get these uh, questions, and we think, "Well, maybe God's not real because I'm not getting what I thought I'd get out of church." And and it might be just because we really haven't let God into the depths of our lives. And you know, I know that this this church is pretty well established, and most of you've been coming for years and years, and, and you have a really solid faith in Christ. But it's possible. It's possible that somebody here has not completely got into the depths of Christ yet. That maybe they've been crowd surfing. And God is calling you to get deeper. Now we got to be real with God. we got to get deep with God. And it, when we get baptized, that's a symbol of the death that we died of the old life, being brought back and resurrected to the new life with Christ. That we are no longer the same person. We are truly surrendered to him and if that's not something that you've done where you haven't got to that depth that is the only thing that's going to maintain your faith through a lifetime and we have to be that kind of church because if we are not the kind of church that's in it for a lifetime sacrificially for what God's will is not for what my will is we're not going to have any relevance to the world around us and I talk I, I listen to Pastor Keith talk about the inception of the church and he talks about how on sunday people would just come forward in droves and they would be crying and they there would be baptisms weekly and there was a sense of impending change in the community that's who we are as a body that's that's where our birth was and that can be a part of this community but we have to live that life of surrender in a a visible way to the community around us. That we're imitators of God in a way that's not always convenient or easy or comfortable, but it's powerful and potent and reflects what He demands of us. Let's not wave palm branches. Let's not make it about empty worship. Let's make it about true testimony of what God has done in my life how he continues to change my life, how he's moved powerfully in my midst, how I saw God in the midst of the toughest time that I've ever seen, how somebody lifted me up when I was completely broken. Let's be specific about why we choose to follow God. Our generation doesn't understand that kind of sacrifice, and I think that's the greatest message that we can bring a a generation that's not understood the selflessness that God calls us to, but we have to live it in a real, intangible, and uh, authentic way. And I don't think it's going to come with just hearing a message and saying, yeah, I'm going to do that, right? I think sometimes that's what we think preaching's going to be, is I'm just going to do whatever the preacher said today. I want you to go home and say, God, okay, what is it going to look like for me to live authentically in the community that surrounds me? If we don't live lives of imitation and growth, we're simply just waving palms and looking for a show. We're not yet all in. And when the days of persecution come, when the walls turn into rubble, we'll be scattered like everybody else. But if we are really surrendered to God, when the difficult times come, when the brokenness comes, when the persecution comes, we'll be strengthened. We'll be in it together. We'll be unified. Real faith is all in and trust God beyond the immediate. Maybe all pray today that God will help us to be his disciples and not just part of the crowd. Let's pray. Father God, I ask for just a, a, a renewed sense of authenticity and um, brokenness to understand what it is you're asking me to do. Put you before myself, and to live for you in a way that's deeper, um, that gives it all. And I pray that for everybody here. If there's somebody here today that maybe has been playing part of the crowd and wants to go deeper, wants to make Christ number one in their lives, that to, to really sacrifice, I invite you today to make that choice, and not only to make that choice, but to share it with somebody. It says, today was the day that I gave it all to God in a new way of surrender. God, I pray that if we're doing that, uh, renewing that, or doing it for the first time, that you'd show us what that's going to mean in our lives, how to live that out, and give us the courage and the support to do that. And I pray that as we collectively do that as a body, it becomes a testimony to the world around us that draws a crowd, and from that crowd, disciples are born. God, we give you all that we have with expectation and prayer for strength to be there, both through the triumphal entry and in the midst of the persecution and crucifixion. We look forward to your resurrection and your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.